before we take a look at the word this morning, a favor to ask of everyone here of a housekeeping nature. You've probably all heard, but as a final reminder, we will not be in this auditorium next Sunday. We will be in the gymnasium. And if you're not sure where that is, when you come in the door, walk that way and just keep on going. And you'll eventually get to the gym. Or just follow the rest of us headed that way. The morning service will be in the gym next Sunday and next Sunday only because carpeting is being put in. And that brings me to the housekeeping request. In the pew in front of you are these pew Bibles. They look just like this. And you can see them, I think, pretty much in every pew. There are a few there. And there also is a little bracket with these visitors' cards in them. If you could do us a big favor, when you leave here after the morning service, if it's convenient, please grab a couple Bibles and the visitors' cards, and right out those main doors, there's going to be a cart on each side of this main walkway. And Tom Blackburn and I will be there, respectively, on each side, gathering up the Bibles and stacking them and putting the uh, visitors' cards in a little cardboard box. So if you could help us with that, that would greatly be appreciated. We do not want your Bible. <laughs> I, I know we're going to get a couple. Just keep your Bible. Turn these back in, if you would, please. Thank you. Open your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to be looking at verses 11 through the end of the chapter, through verse 21. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. And in your pew Bible, if you're using one, it's page 966. Page 966, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 to 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others... But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about our outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, the one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors in Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray.
Father, as we've just read in your word this morning, and as Pastor Chad talked about during the Lord's table, there's this word of reconciliation. And Lord, it is a glorious word, because without it, we would be dead in our sin and we would be lost. Father, we thank you this morning for those who know Christ as their Savior, that there is reconciliation, that grace has abounded in our lives, not because we deserved it, but because you loved us, Lord, and gave Jesus for us. Thank you now for this time. We pray that you would be with Toby as he preaches your word. May the Holy Spirit give us understanding and conviction in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are some things in the life of the church which require rebuke, correction, and the call for repentance. There are other things in which we're just quirky folk, right? And uh, during the first song, seeing the dance of Ron Nolting and Christian Wise in the back of the room, um, I'm not sure which one is appropriate there, quite honestly. They were, there was a hoedown right back there during the first song. That's your warning, Ron. You dance, I'm going to say something about it. Uh, <laughs> I love to uh, read biographies. One of the things that biographies do for you, the good ones, is they give you a sense of what makes a person tick. Uh, last week, I mentioned that I'm reading uh, this classic biography of Adoniram Judson. It's called To the Golden Shore. Um, some biographies, those who write them, don't quite have a knack for writing narrative. They get everything right, but it just doesn't read very well. Well, this reads wonderfully. If you like biography, you need to pick this up. Debbie, we need to get some of these for the cafe. Uh, this is wonderful. And uh, uh, Judson, when he was in seminary, picked up a book on Burma that painted Burma in this wonderful light, uh, and he decided that he was going to go there. He was going to be a missionary uh, to Burma. And when he sailed, he sailed first to India, where he encountered William Carey, and uh, William Carey and the other folks who were there were basically saying, look, go anywhere in the world, but do not go to Burma. It is awful there. And this is what he learned. In Burma, the laws were the bloodiest on earth. The commonest punishments were beheading, crucifixion, and pouring melted lead in small quantities down the throat. And these were inflicted for minor offenses. And yet still, Judson determined that he would go... Uh, the author tells us, what caught his fancy as much as anything was the fact that the Bible had never been translated into Burmese. In Calcutta, it was generally believed that Burma had a population of 17 million. Uh, this is just after the turn of uh, the 19th century, so about 1810, 1811. More than twice that of the United States. There would have to be a Burmese Bible before Burma could become Christian. Adoniram wanted to be the one to provide it, not simply one pioneer among many, but the first to give the Scriptures to a great nation. 
He wanted to be part of doing something that mattered for the Lord. This is what made Judson tick. Now, there are other motivations that are mixed in with this one that you find out along the way. However, part of it is he wants to get a Bible in Burmese. And his wife, writing later in her journal, basically recognizes that they're not going to get very far at all as far as establishing a mission, but maybe they can clear the way so that people can come behind them and establish something that will last. That's what made him tick. That's what I love about biographies. I wonder what makes you tick. I wonder what drives you. I wonder what makes you live the way that you live and what makes you serve the way that you serve. I wonder if we were all reading your biography, what kind of drive it would reveal about you. Well, as you know, 2 Corinthians is quite autobiographical for the Apostle Paul, and in it we see several times things that just make him tick. And this text that we're looking at is one of them. Last week we looked at Paul's boldness and how he kept going, right? How did he stay bold? How did he keep preaching? How did he keep going in the face of opposition? The answer, he walked by faith, not by sight. If last week's text answered the question, how did he keep going, this week's answers, why did he keep going? Why was he so driven? Why did he want to go to places where Jesus had never been preached? Why is he going back to cities that chased him out? Why is he making sure churches are established? Why is he writing these letters in the New Testament to correct and instruct the churches? What makes him tick? And as you read through this, Paul's motivation boils down to this. God. God is his motivation. What motivates him? The Lord. You know it'll never change as far as motivation goes in this world? It's the presence of the Lord. And so what we pick up from the Apostle Paul and what we ought to take home today is this, that God himself is our greatest motivation in ministry. God himself is our greatest motivation in ministry. And as we walk through the text, we'll see God as ministry motivation in three different ways, from three different angles, if you will. The first, Paul was motivated by the fear of the Lord. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And we're not surprised to hear Paul say that he persuades others. Persuasion is what Paul's been about. If you look at Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 19, Paul's in the synagogues persuading people about Jesus. If you go to Acts 26, he's before King Agrippa, and Agrippa catches on to what Paul's doing, and he says, uh, Paul, you think you will persuade me to become a Christian in so little time? And then as the book of Acts closes, Paul's in a Roman prison, and do you know what he's doing day in and day out? persuading people about the kingdom of God and about Jesus. This is what he does. Now, he doesn't employ worldly methods to do it. He doesn't just want to get a response. When he comes to town, he doesn't bring his fog machine with him. When he comes to town, he, he doesn't have slick presentation. He has no theatrics. He, has, he doesn't have the latest and greatest band. 
What Paul has when he comes to town is he has a Bible in his hand and love in his heart so that he speaks the truth in love. He lays out the gospel plain and simple like an oasis in a never-ending desert. And yes, he will tell you of the thirst that you have whether you recognize it or not for this oasis. He will tell you how you can drink from this oasis. He will tell you there is no other oasis for your soul. And it will be emotional. I mean, he pleads with people day and night with tears in his eyes. But it won't be emotion for emotion's sake. He's not just going to try to work you up into a frenzy or see if he can make you cry, see if he can play just as I am for the 14th time and get you down the aisle. Persuasion for Paul is to lay out the truth in a convincing way so that our mind is changed. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit, but that is what he seeks to do. In fact, he doesn't even say he seeks to persuade people. He says, I persuade others. That's what I do. It's on my business card. I'm Paul. I'm here to persuade you. And why does he do it? Knowing the fear of the Lord. Now, if you just start reading at verse 11, you may be confused, but Paul is not afraid of being cast out by God. Paul has just come out of a section where he says, we know that if we dwell in these earthly tents, there is a better dwelling awaiting us in heaven, a heavenly dwelling made by God's hands. He knows that just as chapter 4, verse uh, 14, that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also. He knows that he who began a work in him will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will be kept by the power of God through faith. So he's not afraid of being cast out. What this fear of the Lord means is that Paul has not forgotten that he serves a holy God. He has not come to the place where he's gotten lackadaisical or flippant or lazy about serving the Lord. Well, we're just serving the Lord, you know. What do you do? Well, I serve the Lord. Speaking of serving the Lord makes Paul tremble. This is the God who in Christ, the resurrected Christ, knocked him off his horse blinds him, says, you don't know how much you will suffer except for me, for my name. He trembles at the thought. And we today in 21st century Christian America weigh out whether we should serve the Lord or not. I just want to do something small, you know, something that doesn't take too much time. Something that I can just kind of do in spare time, you know, no big deal. But for Paul, there is a holy conscientiousness of serving the living, holy, triune, eternal God. Did you serve the Lord this morning?
Did you teach a Bible study? Did you care for children? Did you do something for somebody else? Did you do it with the understanding that you're serving a holy God? That will drive you. It doesn't just drive him to persuade others. It drives how he will persuade others. He is not going to persuade others in a way that this holy God would disapprove of. He will say what this God says. He will do what this God says to do. And he will do it in the manner in which God says to do it. Because he fears the Lord. And at the same time, isn't it amazing? He goes on from right from there to say he fears the Lord, but he knows he has nothing to fear. Not simply because he's in Christ, but because he knows he is working from a clean conscience. The very next sentence, but what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. That's not a general statement. He's saying... I hope that you know, as God knows, that we serve Him with a clear conscience. How do I know that? Because He writes verse 12 as well. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to give answer to those who boast about their outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. He had said the same thing in chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. He says the same thing to the Thessalonians, doesn't he? God, God has given him this, this ministry and he fears the Lord and in fear of the Lord he is operating with a clean conscience. Now, some people thought he was nuts, didn't they? Some of the Corinthian teachers that are his rivals, if you will, thought, well, this guy's really nothing. I mean, this is ludicrous. This guy writes a really good letter, but if you go to hear him preach, he's not much to look at. Isn't that right? You say it, Violet. <laughs> it's always good to have a baby amen corner. Because at least you know one person in the room is with you, all right? <laughs> Which is wonderful. But Paul, people thought he was nuts. He would go around. This is the same guy that's hunting down Christians, and now he's saying that, the very, that he's joined up with these people. He's preaching the very Messiah that he denounced. That's what verse 13 is about. If we're beside ourselves, it's for God. This is the same kind of thing, by the way, that Jesus' family said about him. Do you remember in Mark chapter 3? The crowd is so great, and his family can't get to him, and what do they say? He is out of his mind. In fact, it's the same word. Beside ourselves here, and out of his mind, in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, same word. He says, well, if that's the way that you see it, just know that it's for God. Isn't it interesting that the same sermon, the same Bible study, the same gospel presentation with two people in front of you can sound ridiculous to one and reasonable to the other? I mean, here in Indiana, most people are divided in their loyalties between IU and Purdue and Notre Dame, and then there are the wise people. And... <laughs> 
who look to the SEC. Uh, so, not to Tennessee this year, but to the SEC. So, but if you're in a room with these three groups of fans and you just say, well, anybody who, is, anybody who really knows what's going on knows that Purdue is the only team you should cheer for, all right? One-third of those people are like, yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about right. Two-thirds of the people are like, that is the most ridiculous thing I have ever heard. I mean, we know that this happens all the time, but even more so in the realm of gospel preaching, of sharing the Word. How many of you have sat down with more than one of your children and you've said something, and to one of them it sounded completely ridiculous, and to the other it sounded reasonable? And in the end, Paul says if he sounds reasonable, if, it sound, if this sounds reasonable to you sitting here, this text as it is preached, if it sounds reasonable to you, it is for you. That's what Paul's saying. If it sounds crazy, I'm just here to serve the Lord. Why? Because he knows the fear of the Lord. He says in verse 10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Whether, uh, different translation would be whether worthwhile or worthless. And Paul trembles at that day, and he trembles at the one he will face in that day. And so he persuades others. The fear of the Lord motivates him. Second thing, not just the fear of the Lord, but the love of Christ. The love of Christ. If you will, the fear of the Lord is rooted in the future, and the love of Christ is rooted in a past event. So he's motivated from the future, and he's motivated from the past. Look at verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. It controls us. It compels us. It constrains us. Paul's saying, I can't do anything else because of the love of Christ. Now, what is this love of Christ? And if you want to read more than one commentary, you'll find several opinions. Is it basically our love for Christ that controls us? Or is it Christ's love for us? Now, it is true that these two are connected. The love of Christ for us ignites in us love for Him, doesn't it? I love thee because thou hast first loved me and purchased my pardon on Calvary's tree. I love thee for wearing the thorns on thy brow. If ever I love thee, my Jesus is now. We love 1 John 4, 19 because He first loved us. So while they're connected, I don't think, and some people say, some people try to squirm out of this and basically say, well, Paul just means to be ambiguous because it could be either. I don't think so. I think he's talking about Christ's love for us. And let me tell you why. Because look at where the rest of these verses go. The love of Christ controls us. Why, Paul? Because we have concluded this. One has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died 
and was raised. In other words, Paul says the love of Christ controls us, and this is how I figured it out. He died for all. The love of Christ is supremely expressed in his death on the cross. I have said this more than once in the last 10 years, but we do not measure the love of God by our circumstances in this life. We measure the love of God for us in the circumstances of Christ's death on the cross. That's where the love of God is shown, never shifts, never changes. It is forever. If you measure God's love by your circumstances, not only is it wrong, but you'll never be secure in whether He actually loves or not. You'll never actually know. Well, I got stopped by this red light. He must not love me. Oh, I eased into traffic. Oh, He must love me. Oh, I got a promotion. He must love me. Oh, I got passed over for the promotion. He must not love me. And it's just like a little, little girl pulling petals off a daisy, right? He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. But at the cross, if you stop pulling petals off a flower and you look to the tree, you'll see the love of Christ. Never changing. Never changing. So that Romans 5 says, God shows His love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, don't be confused by the word all here. Paul is not espousing universalism. This is, if you go back and do your homework and read Romans chapter 5, this is the same way that he uses all here. The way that Paul in Romans 5 says, all are condemned in Adam, all are made righteous in Christ. He, he is not meaning to be universalistic regarding salvation. In fact, he goes on to say, he died for all that those who live, there's the all, that's who he's talking about. That those who live, those who have spiritual life, Christians, will no longer live for themselves. So this love of Christ motivates Paul. How does it motivate him? Well, it comes with a purpose. The love of Jesus does not come without purpose. Did you see the purpose at the end of verse 15? That those who live might no longer live for themselves. One of the reasons that Jesus Christ died for you is that you would stop the vain, endless, wrath-filled attempt of living for yourself. You remember Jesus' death was marked by these words, wasn't it, as he prepared for his death? Not my will, but yours be done. And everyone who is trusting in his death to forgive their sin, that is the motto of our lives. Not my will, Lord Jesus, but yours be done. It reorients by giving us a purpose. We are not our own, are we? We're bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6. We're no longer slaves to sin, Romans 6, we're slaves to God. We don't belong to ourselves. We don't live for ourselves. But Christ's love doesn't just come with a purpose. It comes with power. Look at, 
Look at verses 16 and 17. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Paul is talking about this radical reorientation of his life. He regarded people in a worldly way. That's what according to the flesh there means. Uh, If you are into uh, reading commentaries, you'll know that some, especially 19th 19th century Germans and early 20th century Germans, like uh, Rudolf Boltmann, uh, basically say that basically uh, Paul is not interested in the historical Jesus. He's just interested in the Christ of faith. He's just interested kind of not in, not in the real Jesus. That's what he's saying here. But really what he's, that doesn't make any sense because he says we don't regard any person according to the flesh. He's saying he doesn't think worldly about people anymore. You know as a Jew what Paul would have thought about Jesus? This is ridiculous. That's what he would say. The Messiah is supposed to deliver us from our enemies. The Messiah is supposed to conquer our enemies. A crucified Messiah. Have you read Deuteronomy? Those who hang on a tree are cursed. This can't be the Messiah. But he doesn't see Jesus that way anymore. Why? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The Lord Jesus, by the Spirit, if you will, dug a grave and buried that old, and it's gone. We have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, he says, but Christ lives in me. We know, Romans 6, 6, that our old self was crucified with Him. We've been buried with Him by baptism into death and raised to walk in newness of life. The old has gone. The new has come. And that's where all of history is going, isn't it? That newness in us is a foreshadow of the newness that's going to take over everything. One day we'll all be singing that song. The old has gone. Behold, pay attention, look up, perk up, listen here. The new has come. And how did that come? The love of Christ. Christ's love in dying for us. It is not simply... I mean, I remember hearing a pastor. I was working with a counselee, and he told me what church he goes to, he goes to and I... I'd never listened to that pastor before, and they happened to have their sermons online. I went and listened... And his pastor essentially said that trusting in Jesus is just a ticket into heaven. It doesn't change you at all. You have to start changing from that point. Friends, that is a lie. Coming to the Lord Jesus Christ is not walking up to a ticket window and getting your ticket into heaven. Coming to the Lord Jesus Christ is the entire death, burial, and resurrection of you spiritually. You are new. This is the the whole thing. The only reason... 
the, the New Testament makes a deal about us being righteous and us, I mean, it's always going to this. You're right with God, now live right with God. Live as you are supposed to live. It is not so you and I will huddle off in a corner and wrap ourselves in the blanket of great statements from the New Testament about how I'm a child of God and I'm righteous and I'm holy and I'm sanctified. It is not for that. It is so that you'll throw down any old blanket and you'll get up and you'll put on the shoes of I am sanctified and you'll walk in it. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, Ephesians 4 verse 1. So the love of Christ gives us a new purpose, and the love of Christ comes with power to enable us to actually live that way. A Christian living for himself or herself is a paradox in the Bible. You see, the love of Christ doesn't just demand my soul, my life, my all. It empowers me to give my soul, my life, my all. What are you living for? How did the love of Christ shape this last week? Is the self-denying, sacrificial love of Jesus controlling you, compelling you, motivating you, driving you? Paul's motivated by the fear of the Lord. He's motivated by the love of Christ. And lastly, he's motivated by the call of God. The call of God. Verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The love of Jesus accomplishes this beautiful reality that really we find primarily right here. It's also in Romans, mentioned in Romans 8, but this word, reconciliation. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be reconciled with anybody, really? Well, reconciliation speaks to fixing what is wrong with a broken relationship. So to wrap our minds around this, let me give you some images of what reconciliation is not, okay? Reconciliation is not a troubled married couple sticking it out for the kids so they won't explosively fight anymore, but the whole marriage goes cold and it dissolves into a domestic partnership. That is not reconciliation, Reconciliation is not verbalizing forgiveness, but refusing to go on with the friendship. That is not reconciliation. Reconciliation is not a heartless, I'm sorry, and an equally heartless, it's okay. That is not reconciliation. None of those things actually repair a broken relationship. Those kinds of things are like duct duct tape taping up the bumper onto your car. I mean, you take one look at it, and you know it's not right, and it won't last, and in the end, it's going to fall apart because it's not really fixed. Reconciliation is two-sided. It is both the ending of hostility and the establishment of harmony. 
enemies are reconciled when the fight is over and mutual love binds them together. Reconciliation is over when the clenched fists of opposition become the open arms of acceptance and love and friendship and fellowship. And friends, this is what God has done for us in Jesus. Our relationship is terribly broken. Terribly broken. It's beyond repair when it comes to us. That's why the text tells us God reconciles us to Himself. He doesn't say we've come to be reconciled or we figured out reconciliation. He says... God reconciles us to Himself. God does the work. We are hostile to God, Romans 8. We are enemies of the cross, Philippians 3. We can do nothing because we're dead in sin. And Paul sums up this reconciliation with this beautiful verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This verse lays out what is called the great exchange, and uh, uh, sometimes I, I taught this to my middle school Bible class years ago by drawing a, a stick figure uh, uh, illustration of it. I found a better one online that you can look at here. But essentially, this great exchange is this. Jesus Christ, whose life was perfectly righteous and earned Him the highest commendation from God. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. He was counted and treated as if He committed all my sin and all your sin and all the sin of every human being who would trust in Him. Think about that. It's enough to get overwhelmed when I think about Jesus paying for my sin much less to begin to think about the myriads of people who are beyond numbering, Revelation 7 says, whose sins were laid on Him. He went to the cross. He faced the wrath of God and satisfied its demands for millions who would be saved. The unimaginable terrifying wrath of God poured out on Jesus Christ in that one day of human history. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath dry so that there's no more for you or for me. And in exchange, we whose lives are completely sinful, who have earned not God's commendation, but we have earned the wages of our sin, which is eternal death, we who should hear from God, depart from me forever, we are counted and treated as if we had never sinned. He says in verse 19, our sin is not counted against us. He remembers it against us no more. And we are counted as perfectly righteous. The righteousness of Jesus is credited 
to us the unimaginable, awe-inspiring grace of God poured out on us so that we can come to the Lord's table and drink the cup of His favor forever. That's what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's what you cannot do for yourself. And so the call to be reconciled to God in the grammar is passive. Be reconciled to God. I can't do that. I know. But God does it first by bringing us to our absolute, the absolute clarity that I deserve nothing but hell, that I deserve nothing but punishment. And then He comes in His grace and His mercy and by His Spirit He grants repentance and faith. And we call out on the Lord for mercy and grace and salvation and He gives it freely. That is awesome. It is just awesome. So that now the relationship is fixed. And it's better than a cold shoulder. It's the open arms of a father. We're children. We were enemies. We're blessed. We were cursed. We're under the grace of God. We were under the wrath of God. But friend, for those who are not Christians, something like the opposite can be said of you. You are God's enemy. But you could be His child. You are cursed, but you could be blessed. You are under the wrath of God, but you could be under the grace of God. Turn from your sin, dear friend. Look to Jesus Christ in faith. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you now. Look to Him. Be reconciled to God. And the God who does that calls us to serve Him called Paul to serve him, gives a ministry of reconciliation, entrusts, which is a, uh, in verse 19 is a way of saying it's been assigned as our duty, entrusts to us a ministry of reconciliation. Another way of saying it is verse 20, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. Now don't think of modern day ambassadors when you hear that. In that day, when a king and his army would conquer another realm, they would send in an ambassador. An ambassador from the victorious king would go into the defeated realm, and he would bring a message from the king. 
And that message would be the terms of peace. How to live at peace with the king who has conquered. This is the kind of ambassador that we are. King Jesus has conquered sin and death and hell. And we have come here not just to speak up for the Christian worldview, not just to, not to argue with people about biblical truth, but to bring the king's message and say, Jesus Christ has died for all and therefore all die. And he has died so that those who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and was raised again. And if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting our trespasses against him, against us. Be reconciled to God. This is how you'll have peace. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if you'll come to him, do you know what Paul would say to you? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Those are the terms of peace, everybody. The terms of peace for this world are not a certain kind of government. The terms of peace for this world is not a certain cultural revolution. The terms for peace in this world is not a thousand other things. The terms for peace in this world comes as we respond to the call of the king himself. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the message you've been given. That's the message that saved you. That's the gospel that has the power of God to save all who believe. And that's the message we're entrusted with. That's the ministry God has called us. He hasn't just called us into relationship with himself. He has called us into service. How humbling is that? Taking your enemies and making them your ambassadors. This is what God has done for us. I'll ask again, what makes you tick? What drives you? What motivates you? What motivates us as a church? What motivates us to exalt Jesus in passionate worship and equip Christians for life and service and encourage one another in meaningful fellowship and engage the world with the gospel? What drives us? Well, Paul would say, here's what needs to drive you. You need to be motivated by the fear of the Lord because he has the last word on everything this church does. We could fill out surveys on what we think till kingdom come. But what matters is what Jesus says. We need to be motivated by the love of Christ. We need to be that self-denying. We need to be that sacrificial. It gives us new purpose and it gives us power to live that new purpose out. And we need to be motivated by the call of God. The God who has called us into relationship with himself has called us into service for himself. God himself is our greatest motivation for ministry. It's not the lostness of the world that is the greatest motivation for ministry. Though it is a motivation, God Himself is the greatest motivation. So that whether we eat, or whether we drink, or whether we teach, or whether we preach, 
or whether we counsel, or whether we make a meal for somebody, or whether we rake a widow's leaves, or whether we give to the poor, or whatever we do, we do it all for the glory of God. Why? Because God himself is our greatest motivation for ministry. Let's pray together. Our Father, we bow before you, thankful that we need not fear punishment when we come before you. Thankful that we have access to your throne, that we will be heard by you, that we are loved by you in Christ. Thankful that you have called us into your service. Lord, we are humbled at the reconciliation we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it causes us to tremble. Tremble. Lord, we pray that you would remind us of your holiness on a regular basis. Remind us that you will have the last word on our lives and on our ministry. By your grace, increase our fear of you such that we are not flippant or lackadaisical or lazy or thoughtless about how we serve you. Motivate us by the fear of the Lord. Remind us often of the love of Jesus Christ seen on the cross who died so we would live for him so that we would be a new creation. Cause us to be motivated by the love of Christ. And Lord, help us to see your call on our lives not as a burden that is grudgingly carried, but as a joy that we happily carry out. Motivate us by the fact that you have called us to serve you. Lord, we pray for those among us, even this morning, who are at odds with you, who are not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would reconcile them to yourself by grace through faith in Jesus. Make us a church motivated for ministry. We pray in Jesus' name.